Sometimes uh, you're driving down the road and the car in front of you has one of those personalized license plates. And uh, it's like this little enigma that you get to figure out, you know, seven, eight characters. What does that mean? And then you solve it. Ah, this is what the license plate says. And you kind of move on with your day. And for a lot of my life, I thought that was the way we were supposed to approach the Bible. Ah, there's a little enigma here I'm supposed to kind of figure out. What does that mean? Ah, figured it out. Good, got it. Particularly the book of Proverbs. Ah, there's a little enigma. I wonder what that means. Ah, I've intellectually solved it. Moving on. Now I understand it. The Bible is not something that we intellectualize and understand. The Hebrew writer says that the Bible is living and active and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between the soul and the marrow. Uh, or sorry, the bone and the marrow, the soul and the spirit. It, the Bible reads us. And we've been going through the book of Proverbs recently because we, we, we need the wisdom of God to know that how to live in these days that we're living in. And of course, that's always true, but particularly poignantly true in all the challenges that we have. And so um, as we approach this wisdom literature, uh, we want to recognize that it's not just a little enigma that you kind of grasp and move on from and say, you know, check, I figured that out. The wisdom literature of the Bible, there's three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And um, we're looking at Proverbs. There's three different voices for those books. The book of Proverbs comes in the voice of this young woman who is brilliant, lady wisdom, the kind of friend that you want to have in your life because she has uh, beautiful insights into how life ought to work. She's got a grasp of the principles and ways God has created us to flourish and do well. So that's the voice of the Proverbs. The voice of Ecclesiastes is the voice of a middle-aged critic. He calls himself the Koheleth in the Greek, which is like saying, I'm your philosophy teacher. And the voice in the book of Ecclesiastes is quite cynical. Because that philosopher sat back and said, well, it seems to me that whether you're wise or foolish, the end is the grave. Whether you're rich or you're poor, the end is the grave. Whether you're healthy or you're weak, the end is the grave. And whether you're a philanthropist or you're cosmically selfish, the end is the grave. And so Ecclesiastes carries this really dark and heavy tone, saying you better think really deeply about what is of true value in life. And so you've got this lady wisdom, the voice of Proverbs. You've got this deep philosophical thinker saying, you better think deeply about where this is all going. Otherwise, you're just living from one distraction to the next and calling that joy. And then the third book is the book of Joel, which comes to us through the voice of this aged man who's been through tremendous suffering, who is now presenting to us uh, not specific answers for our suffering, pointing this to this tremendously gracious God who is with us and carries us through suffering. And so as we approach the wisdom literature, whether it's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, or Job, we don't just look at it like a license plate and go, I wonder what that means. Ah, check, I figured it out. Moving on. Our text for today, Proverbs chapter 11, verses 23 through 27. The desire of the righteous ends only in good. The expectation of the wicked in wrath. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what they should give, and only suffers want. The generous soul will be enriched, and those who water will themselves be watered. The people curse those who hold back grain, but a blessing is on the head of those who sell it. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil come to those who search for it. 
This is God's word. Now, as we approach this text, there's lots to unpack. I won't do it justice in the next 25 minutes. But let's not just look at it to say, let's intellectualize this and understand it. But let's trust in this morning that the word of God will read us. Amen? This is an, what, what they call in Hebrew poetry an inclusio. Uh, verses 23 and 27 are the same thought. The inclusio is like having bookends. And so the purpose of the poetry is to say, here's a thought, here's a parallel thought, and it's forcing you into the middle to the sort of the central theme, the central idea. So instead of reading this like North Americans and just going verse by verse, we're actually going to approach this text as the Hebrew writers intended, on the ends of the bookend, and we're going to work our way into the middle. So what we discover here as we look at what's on the outside of the text, verses 23 and 27, um, is it says that the desire of the righteous ends in good, or whoever diligently seeks good, seeks favor. It, it ends in good. What is this? This is to love what God loves, to have this sense of congruence with the one who created all things, that we are sort of living in line with the way in which we are created. There's this desire for flourishing that gets the amen of heaven. We're thinking the same way. We're loving the same things. The desire of the righteous ends in good. And it's, then it says that the expectation of the wicked ends in wrath, right? Or evil comes to those who search for it. What is that about? Well, the wicked, unlike the righteous, are not loving the things of God in congruence with the way that God thinks and loves and approaching life and the way that he approaches it. Their expectation, also known as their hope, also known as the thing that they put all their chips in, it's only ending one place. And it's ending in wrath. And that is really striking language. That's really offensive language in 2021. We don't even like the idea of wrath. We would prefer a God who is just lovey-dovey and there is no wrath. The problem with that modern construct of God is that he isn't loving at all. I mean, if you look out in the street and somebody is being beaten to the ground and you turn your, a blind eye and you walk away and you say, I'm not going to intervene with this. Nobody's going to look at your action and say, that seems very loving. But to intervene is loving. So how do we understand this wrath? And why does it say that the wicked are, are headed toward wrath? Before we get into that, it's important to understand the Bible says nobody is righteous. And then Paul makes use of the psalm that says nobody is righteous in the book of Romans. And he says nobody is righteous. Which kind of brings the church to our knees so that there's a real humility with the way that we think about this. So that we don't read this text and go, ah, those of us who are in the service today, we're the righteous and the evil people are outside. And do you see the difference? I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that those of us who are, not, are in Christ are not called righteous. What I'm saying is, that's not a very helpful way to think about how we arrived here. Because the Bible isn't dividing people up into, uh, you know, simply good and bad. The Bible's actually dividing us up into dead and alive. Like, that's where the gospel's going. If you're in Christ, you're alive. And if you're not in Him, you're dead. Those are the categories. So the Old Testament gives the language of wicked and righteous, but really what it's provoking us to see is, in the end, is there going to be life or death? So what is this wrath? Well, it's judgment, because the wicked are totally incongruent with the way that God sees the world. But when you read through the Old Testament and you see the word wrath, like here, it's, the image is not Zeus, who is angry, firing thunderbolts. That's not congruent with God's wrath. If you read the Old Testament... You read through the Old Testament, you find that by the time God gets to wrath and judgment, it's been a long, long time. Like a lifetime. 
sometimes multiple lifetimes before he moves in judgment. God is more patient than you and I are. He is more caring and loving than you and I are. God is a formidable foe, some theologians have said, because he's trying to save everybody who wants to kill him. So the wrath of God needs to, cannot be understood apart from the tears of God, the sorrow of God. So when God brings judgment, it's not like Zeus who's firing angry thunderbolts. It's like a parent who's brought to tears because their child is in, self, in such self-destructive behavior, the parent cannot permit it to continue. Have you ever talked to somebody, or some of you have been in this situation yourself, have you talked to somebody who has had to ask their child to leave the house? They talk about that through tears. They are sorrowful and devastated. They're, they extend, and as you listen to those parents, I'm talking about Christian uh, parents who love God and love His ways, and they have a child who at some point they have to say, you can't stay here, you have to go. You're just, your behavior is so destructive or so disruptive, I can't permit it to continue in the house because of the devastating impact that it's having on you and on your siblings or on us. I mean, have you, have you ever talked to somebody like that? They didn't ask that kid to make their bed in the morning and kick them out at lunch. So the way to understand the wrath of God is he weeps and relents for so long before the judgment comes. He is long-suffering. This is the, the strong theme of the book of Jonah. Jonah doesn't even want to go to Nineveh because he knows what God is going to do. Jonah's like, I don't like those people. I don't like their culture. I got a huge problem with, you know, their morality. And I would prefer that God burnt them to the ground. So I'm not going because I know what God will do. He will forgive them. So he goes the opposite direction. That is how we must understand God's wrath. The text says that is where the hope of the wicked is heading. You are hoping in something smaller than God, infinitely smaller than God, trusting in it like it's God, putting all your chips on it like it's God, orbiting your life around it like it's God, and that thing is ending in death. That thing is ending in judgment and in wrath. And so, this is uh, how, where the text sort of um, takes us and provokes us to, to, to see. Um, so what have they done? What have the wicked done? That unless they repent, this thing is ending in judgment. Well, you have to move in to the, through the inclusio. And you move in to the next verses, 24 and 26, and you see here's the problem. Hoarding. <laughs> Massive hoarding. They don't worship the creator. They're obsessed with the created. They don't worship the giver. They're obsessing over the little gifts. Uh, the wicked in this immediate context, they are accruing massive wealth through greed. And the greed becomes really apparent here because in verse 24 it says they're withholding what they should be giving. And verse 26 says you know, they're withholding grain. And uh, in the ancient context, to withhold grain, that's why this is hoarding. That's why uh, this is a problem. And the reason it's a problem is because what they would do uh, is they would realize that at some point terrible weather is coming, at some point a famine is coming, so they would hoard the grain, wait until you were in a really difficult situation, and then charge you exorbitant famine prices and get wealthy off of the misfortune of others. And so this is not just like a supply and demand situation. This is not like shrewd business practice. This is the Amos chapter 4 stuff that God says, I hate it. If you, God is not against wealth, provided that everybody else around you in your life benefits from your wealth. 
So if you're a Christian business person and you are wealthy, God does not inherently have a problem with that. But if, all, but if none of your staff are wealthy, God has a massive problem with that. If you're enjoying wealth, but the people who work in your company can't afford to live in the city that they, that they work in, and you want all of their time, but they can't live there, God has a massive problem with that. That's what's going on here. That's what's that's what saying, you know, there is a, a way that ends in righteousness, the way that God thinks about life, and that's very good. And then there's another end, a way that ends in utter, utter, utter uh, judgment. And, you know, Amos chapter 4 highlights this. I'm going to read it for you because it expounds how Israel ended up actually doing this very thing. Now, it's very possible for Christians to justify all of the wealth that they have on the backs of those uh, uh, who've come upon hard times and they've benefited from those hard times. And this is what Amos says. It says uh, in chapter 4, verses 4 to 8, Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor saying, when will the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? When is church going to be over? i got to make stacks on stacks on stacks. Land the plane, preacher. I don't really care about this. I'll tell you what I care about. After I leave church and I'm making money and I'm living a very comfortable life, that's what's up. Amos chapter 4. I know that seems like a bit of a modern paraphrase, but read it. It's in line with the text. The text goes, when, when will Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Wheat skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver, buying the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings of the wheat. This is what, this is what that is. But what's this all provoking? I mean, what is the point of really pushing this about the problem with being a hoarder, a hoarder of money and a hoarder of wealth? What the hoarder fails to realize, as you look at the text of what ends up happening to them, what the hoarder fails to realize is that in the end, uh, they ultimately lose all of the material things that they spent their lives accumulating. And those who are incongruent with the righteousness, the love, the goodness of God, they living very benevolent lives, not withholding but giving, uh, they end up prospering in the end not only spiritually prospering, but in the end, physically, materially prospering. Maybe not here in the 80 years you have on this life, but this is the, significant, this is the significance of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't come back as a phantasm. It wasn't some sort of cosmic, ethereal thing. The resurrected Jesus Christ was like, do you have any fish? I'd like something to eat. I mean, the material, physical resurrection of Jesus points the Christian to where this is all headed. Physical resurrection. Physical resurrection of all things. The society we wish we had that is evading us. The justice and the mercy and the generosity that we see glimpses of. But then they're sadly in this paradox of ridiculous greed. The resurrection of Jesus Christ points us to see that in the end is the restoration of all things, including the restoration of the material. Grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the doing away with the material. The resurrection of Jesus Christ says to the Christian, actually God is going to restore the material and he will raise me to enjoy it. Now that ought to have a provocative impact on the way that we relate to wealth. And we should have a, in contrast to the hoarders, who only have so many years in this life to enjoy, and so therefore you got to get all you, you, know, you can in this moment. This is the contrast that we're, we're given. And we know that, we, that there's this sort of this spiritual and material blessing. And how do we know that? And to know that, we have to look, move right to the center 
right to the center of the inclusio, the generous soul will be enriched, and those who water will themselves be watered. Generous soul. It's interesting language. Generous soul will be enriched. Uh, generous in the, in the Hebrew is barcha, which means to be blessed. And so it's interesting. It's like there's a cycle here that we're supposed to notice. The blessed soul will be blessed. But where, which came first? It's there on purpose. The blessed soul will be blessed. The word soul, I put it there. You're, some of your translations say person, and that is also faithful translation and good. I chose soul because the soul, um, the, uh, the, the nefesh in Hebrew, also means like the emotions, the inner person, uh, the thoughts, the passions, the appetites. So what this saying is, the person with that generous appetite, the generous emotions, the, the person who sort of has a, a generous proclivity, they're going to be enriched. And enriched could also be translated because, again, Hebrew is a very like imaginative auditory language. Could be translated drink to their satisfaction. Drink their fill. So get the picture here. Ah, this generous person is drinking their fill. And the one who waters will themselves be watered. The image of waters, again, is to hand somebody a drink. The one who's handing someone a drink They're full. They're drinking to their full. And this is right at the center of the poetry, and I want you to notice the cycle, the cycle of refreshing. Which came first? Was it it that there were, you know, you are feeling blessed and refreshed and watered, and so because you're feeling so good, you then care about the other person in this room, and you kind of give yourself to them, and and you be a source of refreshing for them? Is that how it happened? Or... Is it that the act of getting outside yourself, getting outside your agenda, getting outside your schedule, getting outside your world, or is it the act of getting outside of your world and watering somebody else that makes your nefesh blessed and refreshed? What is it? Which is it? Well, this is the point of the poetry. It's, it's for us to examine the areas in our own hearts in which we have difficulty being generous. Because it's easy to look at a text like this as I'm breaking out the historical context and go, oh my goodness, I could have taken Sunday morning off. I am not hoarding grain. <laughs> well, maybe not. Rick was up here, and for those of you who are visiting us, he's one of the elders at Redeemer. And he was just saying, as he was receiving the offering, that the folks at Redeemer have been very generous. They'd be like, well, we're just wasting a lot of time talking about financial generosity. None of us are squeezing our quarters so tight the moose has a tear in his eye. I mean, why are we talking about this? Well, maybe. I mean, maybe some of you, that's not a spiritual muscle you need to exercise. You're very generous financially. Maybe for some of you, that's not the case. Maybe it's possible that that, 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 that applies in a very direct way. And whether it's giving to the preservation of the gospel through the church or the refugee sponsorship or any of the other needs that come your way. Maybe we send those e-blasts out. We say, hey, we need some meals for the One Roof Youth Shelter. A handful of you guys made meals this week and dropped those off. But maybe for others of you, that is difficult. You get that spreadsheet out and go, oh boy, I don't know if I can... Maybe that is difficult. But you know what? This is the point of the poetry for us to consider about watering and being watered. It pulls the image... uh, The immediate context is money and and resources. But it pulls us out of that to just think about the condition of our soul. Because could it be that as busy North Americans, that the the most difficult thing, the, the spiritual muscle that's hardest 
for us to exercise is to be generous with our time, with our lives, with our schedules, to care and love in really practical, tangible ways with the people that are sitting around you, to go for the walk and go for the coffee, go, how are you doing, and, and get into each other's lives. That could very well be quite difficult for us. And so we look at this, we look at that line, those who water will themselves be watered. And it provokes us to ask if we believe that that's true. See, this, this wisdom literature is provoking us to consider what is congruent with how God has created our flourishing. So could it be true that if I'm, if I'm watering, that I will be watered? Uh, because what do I do if I'm not feeling very blessed, I'm not feeling very refreshed, I'm not feeling very watered, which, which is all of us at some point. I mean, what do I do in those days and those weeks where I feel like stick a fork in me, I'm done. I don't want to meet with anybody, talk with anybody. My life has enough drama. I don't want to deal with anybody else. I mean, what do we do in those moments? Do we, do we sit back and, 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 and disconnect and say, I'm not going to be about watering. I'm going to be all about waiting. I'm going to wait for somebody else to come into my life and be watering. But see, this is the point of the cir- circular poetry of the wisdom of God is how have you been created? How has God uh, designed you and I so that our souls would flourish? And feel refreshed and feel watered. What has he done? And so in this we see, well, there's a great temptation to curve in, but the wisdom of God is that actually I'll be refreshed as I curve out. And I'm not saying that there aren't going to be times where you've got to starfish onto your bed and cry for a while. Or flop on your couch and be like, I can't see anybody today. Of course. You're human. Jesus Christ himself, after he was ministering and giving and giving and giving, was like, I, gotta, I, gotta, I need a break. Jesus is like, I'm going in the wilderness, and then they fall out there. Now, Jesus, unlike us, was like, okay, we'll minister again. and just heal the sick and cast out demons and feed 5,000 people. He's exhausted, and he keeps on giving. And you and I can't do that because we're not Christ. But notice in whose image we've been created. Notice uh, the wisdom of what we have been given to dial us out of ourselves. The proclivity to to be curved in. Because there is a huge difference between needing time alone because you've been giving of yourself. There's a huge difference between saying, I've been giving and giving and giving and I just need to rest versus you've not been giving, you've not been giving, you've not been giving, you're living curved in and that's actually the reason you're at unrest. Because in, in, in the cultural conversation around self-care, which is wise and good within the context of, I think, the wisdom of Scripture... I've been giving and giving and giving, and now I need to rest. The, the cultural conversations around self-care can make it very easy for us, and the last year of this pandemic has given us way too much time to be in our own heads, in our own selves, which actually becomes the cause of our unrest. And so we think about the wisdom of this. We think about how Christ walked this out and in his own, in his, in, in his own uh, life by his grace. And how this is a picture and, and a gift for you and I and how to be watered. Matthew 25, Jesus gives a description at the end of days when, when, when Christ is sitting on the throne of judgment and he's judging. He's judging two different groups of people. And talks about separating the church into sheep and goats. And that, that doesn't mean that like, the church are the sheep and the world are the goats. He's actually separating from his church the sheep and the goats. That means... We all kind of look the same, but Christ is the one that knows who in the church globally and in here, but globally, 
It's like, I'm trusting in him versus I'm going through the motions. And one of the things that Jesus parses out in Matthew 25 is this business of watering and generosity. You're not saved to the degree that you do it. However, if there's no evidence of it, then that's a, that's a code red. And what Jesus says in Matthew 25 is, he says, you saw me thirsty and you gave me a drink. You saw I was hungry and you fed me. You saw I was naked and you clothed me. You saw I was in prison and you came and visited me. And then the righteous say to Jesus, when did we see that? Remember that text? But the righteous are saying, oh, when did we see that? Because they're so watered. Right? They're just in the flow of generosity. There's this generous soul. That for them, just kind of caring for the other people around them is the way, has been a nourishing thing in their life. So they're like, when did we see that? And then Jesus turns to the goats and he says, you didn't, you, you, I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. And he goes through all the opposite. And then what do, what do the wicked say? They say, when did we see that? <laughs> you see this? Same, same situation, same context. But the generous soul is being watered. And the one that is not generous is like, I didn't, I didn't notice. Well, that's because when your soul is refreshed, it's like, yeah, sure, I'll give some of my time to have a coffee with you and care about you. But when you're not generous and you're curved inward and everybody has to sort of fit into the, the, the fortress of comfort you've created for your life, then it's like the wicked's like, I didn't even notice. I didn't see that need. Well, of course you didn't see the need. This is what the, this is what the text is provoking us to consider. So why is it then that the pathway to feeling blessed and refreshed and watered is to bless and refresh and water others. I mean, what, why is this the cycle that's given? It's because we've been created in the image of our God and our God is a giver. At creation, I mean, the world and the cosmos exists because God was a giver. He, he, God is a trinity, not a unity. If God was a unity and he was just singular, then everything was created from his cosmic power. But he's not a unity, he's a trinity. And because he's a trinity, he was enjoying relationship before any of us ever got here. And the whole cosmos was spun forward from his giving nature. And from the beginning, God has been giving to all who are not God. And we've been created in his image. The cross is a picture of Christ coming and giving himself. Giving himself for you and I, we don't deserve it. That God comes and provides everything that he requires. He comes and, he goes, and Jesus Christ goes to the cross... And he lives the perfectly generous life that you and I are not living. And he, he shows himself a, a one who is w- watering others to the point of the cross in a way that you and I never can and never will. And he takes away all of our sin so that if we trust in him, we stand before God justified. Just scandalous levels of giving. This is our God. He's a giver. And then he indwells us with his spirit, and the spirit is continually giving. And you and I, renewing us, doing the work of renewal, making us more like the one we were created. This teaching calls us to live in this congruence of who we were created to be. And so that united to Christ and full of the spirit, this is who we can increasingly be. This wisdom is personified in Jesus. Jesus says in John 4 to this woman who had a horrendous life, and he meets her at the well, and he says to her, everyone who drinks of my water will never thirst. Those who drink this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst. The water that I give will become in them a fount of water, a spring of eternal life. The power to be a source of refreshment and a blessing to water the other weary souls in this room, this comes from the worship of Jesus because he is the source of refreshment and blessing 
The end of the sermon is not get out there and roll your sleeves up and be more generous. You can't actually do that. Wisdom flows from worship throughout the Proverbs continually. It keeps on saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the When you marvel at the goodness of Christ, the fount, the one who says, I will water you in such a way that you will never thirst again, this is where the empowerment comes to care for the people in the chairs around you. This is where the power comes to water and rejuvenate other people's souls because your soul is indeed rejuvenated. And how do you honor a fountain? Well, you don't honor a fountain by flicking teaspoons of water into it, trying to add to it. And we don't love the others in this room and the hope that we're sort of securing our salvation and honoring God that way. You honor a fountain by drinking from it. And so as we worship God and as we turn to him, by God's grace, may he lift us out of our times of weariness where we'd be tempted to curve in. And may we curve up in worship and out towards each other in care. And may the good news of God's grace towards you and the restoration of all things, may it transform you deeply and richly. And may the truth of the gospel shape you so profoundly that you are well-watered and refreshed, that you care for each other. And, and lastly, as we close this morning, by God's grace, may we go into the city. And may we be mindful that all those who are around us, they are hoarding and clinging to little insufficient things the source of their hope. And may we, with great humility, not because we're better, but because we're forgiven, may we, with great humility, give a defense for our hope in Christ alone, the one who waters our souls. Let's pray.